Hello. Earlier in the season, I chatted to journalist Lynn O'Donnell about her book, High Tea in Mosul. Lynn speaks to me today from Kabul, where she's been reporting on Afghanistan for more than a decade and was in the country when the Americans and British invaded in October 2001 after the 9-11 attacks in the United States. She's returned to the war-torn country to witness the departure of the NATO troops after 18 years. I'm delighted to talk to Lynn from Kabul about the return of the Taliban and what could this mean to women in particular. So Lynn O'Donnell, welcome back to Conversations with Peter Wood. Thanks, Peter. It's so lovely to be with you. Lynn, you recently reported on Taliban threats to kidnap girls and women, raising concerns about them effectively becoming sex slaves. It was an extremely disturbing report. But before you go into that in more detail, can you please briefly remind us of the history of the Taliban, where and when they were formed, and where have they been holed up in the past 18 years? Um, well, um... Peter, the, the Taliban grew out of the civil war that followed the departure of the Soviet troops in 1989, a kind of similar scenario that seems to be unfolding here. Um, the invading, occupying troops left and everybody who was here and had been fighting to get rid of them um, started fighting each other like cats in a bag for the spoils, for uh, wealth, for territory, power and um, the place descended into this awful internecine civil war for a few years and um, pretty much like you have today ordinary Afghan people are just exhausted by it. Um, they die, they killed in crossfire, um, they're victims of the, the squeeze of territory um, for supplies, for food, for things like that. And um, they just got terribly sick of it and of the corruption. And the Taliban came along and said, we can do better, started cracking heads. And people said, at least some sort of justice, no matter how rough it might be, is better than none. And the Taliban came in and took power in 1996. Um, what followed, of course, was terrible. Uh, they didn't really know what they're doing. And like today, they can't offer anything in terms of civic services like collecting the garbage or building hospitals, schools or roads. It's all just about power and repression and suppression. Um, and that lasted until um, 2001, as you said, um, October 2001, after the 9-11 attacks on the United States. Mm. So where have they largely been, been hiding in the last 18 years? Well, um, they only hid for a little while. Um, they were forced over the border. The leadership went over the border into Pakistan when the Americans and the Allies came in. And uh, they regrouped there. They have had uh, funding and support and uh, safe haven protection from the Pakistani authorities, notice notably the Secret Service, the ISI, um, and that has enabled them to um, be used by the Pakistanis strategic depth. They would very much like Afghanistan to be a vassal state, so they have a buffer against India. Um, and they've used the Taliban to uh, keep uh, uh, Afghanistan weak ever since, yeah. So and now the Taliban, of course, have a political um, office in Doha because former President Donald Trump 
uh, effectively gave them political legitimacy with the deal that he did in February 2020, which has brought us right to where we are today. Um, the deal uh, pledged the American military withdrawal, which they're sticking to. Biden is sticking to that. August 31 is the deadline, um, even though the Taliban for their part haven't really stuck to any side of their deal except not to hack um, the US forces. Well, absolutely. I mean, NATO pulling out now, surely they would have known that the void will be quickly filled by Taliban. Well, it's hard to know what anybody knew. If, if nobody had then been on another planet or in deep denial, I think what has happened is that the Americans wanted out and um, Joe Biden um, also is a fan of a small uh, counter-terrorism large military presence. And while he was making the decision after he came into office in January, it took a couple of months, he didn't announce his decision until April, I think. And during that time, I, I did a bit of reading about his background, notably Woodward's book, um, Obama's Wars. And it was pretty clear from that, that while Obama was making the decision about whether or not to surge troops in Afghanistan in 2000. Uh, 9, 10, um, 11, around there, um, Biden was against, uh, against it. And all the people around him then are still around him now, um, Blinken and Sullivan um, at the State Department. And so the Afghans say that they were by surprise, but I think that they were taken by surprise only because they too had been in denial. Um, so there shouldn't have been any surprises, a little bit of a shock maybe, but um, it was to be expected that the Americans, after 20 years, $2 trillion, two and a half thousand deaths, they wanted out. And if not now, when? When do the Afghans actually get a chance to do it on their own? I think that that was the thinking. Absolutely. But but what does their possible return to power mean to Afghanistan and to women? Can we expect a return of public executions, closing girls' schools, banning television and blowing up historical Buddha statues, to name but a few? Yes, uh, the track record is there, no matter how much people tried to say, the people especially involved in the deal between, you know, Trump's administration and the Taliban, tried to say the Taliban had changed. This has led to a lot of big mistakes on the ground here. Um, and one has been taking that on face value that the Taliban had changed because they haven't. And um, we've seen, there's been a pretty bold advance across um, an enormous swathe of Afghan territory over the last few months. And the Taliban who go into districts, not yet any um, provincial cities, but they go in and there's revenge attacks. Um, they, uh, they look for people who um, have worked for the government in civil society, um, uh, human rights advocates, and indeed women who work. And they hold people in many of the districts that they've um, taken, that the women have to stay indoors, um, that they're not allowed to work. They've, they've closed girls' schools. Um, they offer nothing. It's, as I said before, uh, it's just... Uh, a back to the future situation. I think it's a little bit um, uh, uh, preemptive to say that they will win. Um, I'm not so sure. They're clearly going for a military victory. The Afghan government has said 
said that they are preparing for um, a power sharing deal with the Taliban, that they do come in and they become integrated in system as it exists now. And that means elections and elections means um, uh, Afghan people get to choose who leads them. And it's a pretty sure bet that um, the majority of Afghans would not vote for uh, Taliban candidates. Um, which I think is why we see them going for a military victory. Peace, as we know, is a is a long-term thing. First, you have to, you know, you go through what's happening now and one side to the peace says we, um, we're stronger than you, so we get more concessions at the, at the peace table and that's what the Taliban are doing. Um, if they come in militarily, yeah, it's all over for a lot of people and a lot of people are really afraid of that and... The government has been backfooted, terribly weak, indecisive, um, changing a, a very important leadership positions quite regularly. Um, Minister of Defence, Minister of Interior, for instance. So no consistency in leadership and no strategy. There is a sign that that's starting to change. I think that the Afghan government's also under immense pressure from the Americans to get their act together um, and to also... Um, believe the writing on the wall. Uh, there has been what seems to be what could pass for a strategy of um, if uh, places are surrounded, if our bases and our, our fighters are surrounded, then we'll do a tactical retreat. We'll let the Taliban come in because they've changed. It's all going to be okay. Um, and um, uh, we'll, we'll see this as a march towards a power sharing um, agreement. But it hasn't worked like that. And as you say, some terrible, terrible things have happened well, where the Taliban have gone in. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that during the peak of the Taliban rule back in, what, 1999, not a single girl was enrolled in a secondary school. And merely 4% of those eligible, that's some 9,000, were at primary schools. Now, around about three and a half million girls are currently in school. So let's talk about women. You recently reported on the abuse of women in areas now occupied by Taliban. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think the story that you're referring to is in foreign policy about a district that I went into that had been held by the Taliban for, for mid-July, so just a couple of weeks ago. Um, this uh, particular district is called Saigon and it is in Bamiyan province, which is in the central highlands. So a valley um, in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of the country, very remote. Um, part of the country is really quite poor, very vulnerable, and there is no army presence in uh, Bamiyan. Um, and most of the people who live there are Hazaras with some Tajiks. Um, the Hazara people here have been subjected to quite horrific uh, treatment uh, very recently, but also over the past century. And they know that they've got an awful lot to lose. So they've been deploying uh, citizen militias to quite um, remarkable effect. And uh, one of the things that they have been doing is pushing the Taliban out of districts that they have taken over within Bamiyan province and also in some other provinces that are predominantly Hazara populated. Inside the Taliban came in and uh, the uh, militia and uh, police forces, the police fight on the front lines here, um, retreated. And the Taliban uh, just took over in this way that they have been doing across the country 
reportedly. They looted shops, they uh, stole people's food and sheep and fuel, and they instituted uh, a religious tax where, you know, we'll take your sheep and we'll call it a religious tax. Then they started um, ordering people, um, this is the disturbing part, to make lists of young women, girls, and uh, women who were married to uh, men who are or were fighting for the Afghan security forces. And they said, uh, what we're going to do is round up these girls and women and marry them uh, to our young fighters, uh, our young fighters in Quetta, in southern Afghanistan. Um, in Quetta is in Pakistan, which is one of the headquarters for the um, Taliban um, and elsewhere um, uh, in, uh, in Pakistan. And they didn't get around to actually rounding up young women, but just the orders for the lists, as you can imagine, sent shivers through the place because it's we're not really talking about marriage. We're talking about kidnap and sex slavery. And that's uh, what people heard it as. And they got their women into um, cars and taxis and however they could and, and got them out of the district. Some women have yet to return. And I spoke to women who had returned and to um, their husbands, and there was sheer terror about what they thought their fate would be if the Taliban stayed. So they see women as spoils of war, I assume. Well, this is what um, uh, an academic here at uh, Kabul University uh, told me um, in he put it into the terms of the ideology, if you can call it that, that the, the Taliban uh, follow. Uh, very strict, uh, very conservative, very old-fashioned, a very um, a unique, if you like, interpretation of Islam that gives them the, this right. Uh, we are moving in as a jihadist force. Whatever is in the space that we are taking over now belongs to us, and that includes the women. It's also a form of, um, if you like, uh, ethnic cleansing, because uh, the women are, are taken away, or their husbands come and um, uh, stay with them. They integrate with the with the local populations, as Al Qaeda has done in um, a number of districts along the eastern border here, um, and become inextricable. Uh, from the local population, but also um, those local people become of the ethnicity of the Taliban and they are predominantly Pashtun. So you can look at it as, yeah, a sex slavery, um, ethnic cleansing policy that is very much rooted in this uh, incredibly uh, conservative interpretation of Islam where what's here is now mine and that includes the women, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, the Taliban have often said it wants a genuine Islamic system that aligns with the Afghan tradition, but it's actually unclear what exactly that means and how different it would be from their previous rule, doesn't it? Well, so I, guess, well you know, so I suppose the big question is what lies ahead then? Well, yes, because if they're falling back on, you know, um, we will treat women and girls and education and everything else according to um, traditional Islamic uh, uh, rules of uh, 
behaviour um, and they're not saying what those particularly are, then it means that they get away with whatever they want. And the, um, the Islam that prevails in Afghanistan is really quite um, uh, moderate, if you like. This is a country that has a history, a deep, deep history of uh, different faiths and tolerance of different um, cultures and religions, including Buddhism. It was, you know, there are there's a place in Kabul I visited the other day called the Balahisar, which is a seat has been a seat of power um, in this city uh, on a crossroads of north, south, east, west, going all over the country. So commercial and spiritual, ideological um, and political power for. Um, more than 3,000 years, and it was, and the remains are still there, surrounded by Buddhist monasteries. Uh, so that sort of thinking um, uh, and philosophy has also informed the way um, Afghans think today. And really, uh, the vast, vast majority of the people in this country do not want to go back to the, the horrors of the Taliban rule between 1996 and 2001. They've been there, done that, didn't like it much, threw away the T-shirt, you know, they, they want what they've got. And also we've got to remember that an enormous proportion of the population in this country is young. Um, it's something like 5% of the population is aged under 30 or 35. That's an astoundingly young population, whether they're rural or urban. Um, they've got iPhones, they've got TV, they know what the outside world is about and they want to be a part of it. So um, for them, there's no going back. Uh, so, you know, what lies ahead? I think what lies ahead is, is um, a, a, fight for, a fight for the country and a fight for the gains of the past 20 years, whether people recognise it as that or not. It's a fight for who they are and who they want to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you said earlier, perhaps it is time for Afghanistan to rule itself and uh, it's time for NATO to go, but it doesn't bode well, whatever way you look at it. Well, war is never good and it does bode for, a, you know, a long drawn out nasty war. What we're seeing is um, revenge killings. We're seeing utter hypocrisy at the, at the top leadership levels of the Taliban. We have changed, isn't that terrible? Oh yeah, we heard that comedian in Kandahar was kidnapped and slapped around and tortured and then shot to death. But isn't that awful? We would never do that. But this is happening all over the country. People are being taken out of their homes and disappeared or forced into their homes if they're women. And um, there is no unity. There is no, what is the Taliban? What do we stand for? Um, so yeah, I think it's gonna be long and nasty and, and terrible. Uh, whether it descends into what we call a civil war or a struggle for liberty or, or what. Um, but yeah, it's gonna it's going be a hard yakka for sure. Very interesting. Well, sadly, we're out of time. Len O'Donnell, it goes without saying, please stay safe. And thank you for thank joining you, me on Conversations with Peter Wood. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Peter. Lovely. Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, 
from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.